Hi, this is Ben Smith. I'm a photographer, and this is my podcast, A Small Voice Conversations with Photographers. Thanks for listening. Hello, listener. Thanks for joining me. Welcome to episode 23 of A Small Voice Podcast. On the podcast this week, Murray Ballard. Murray embarked on a degree in furniture and product design before realising that learning about the chemical properties of plastic held little interest for him. And at this point he jumped ship and switched to an art foundation course where he duly discovered something much more exciting. He graduated from the University of Brighton in 2007 with a degree in photography. The following year he was selected for Fresh Faced and Wild Eyed, the annual showcase for work by the most promising recent graduates at the Photographer's Gallery in London. And in 2011, the British Journal of Photography recognised him as an emerging photographer of note. Following his debut solo show at Impressions Gallery in Bradford, The Prospect of Immortality, which took as its subject the strange marginal world of cryonics, the process of storing a dead body by freezing it until science has advanced to such a degree that it is able to bring that person back to life. Immediately after leaving college, Murray got the job of assisting Magnum photographer Mark Power, a role which he stayed with until quite recently. And during those past 10 years, he's taken on his own commissions, worked on his own personal projects and continued his cryonic story, which he had first began while he was still studying uh, after coming across a curious news story in the Guardian newspaper. And exactly a decade later, the book of that project has finally been published by Goss Books. Morris photographs have been published in numerous magazines and newspapers, including Esquire, the FT Weekend, Geo, GQ, The Guardian, The Independent and Wired. So if you want to hear all about the strange and weird and wonderful world of cryonics, then enjoy the interview with Murray Ballard. How did it all begin? So I left school, uh, well, I left college after doing my A-levels and went off, off, well, after meeting a careers advisor, uh, they told me that I'd be ideal for furniture design or product design. So that's, I went off to Leicester, uh, to De Montford Uni and started a degree in product design slash furniture design. And I kind of knew that from the beginning that this this wasn't really what I wanted to do. Um, and then it was sitting in a lecture on a Wednesday night. I think we had these sort of late Wednesday lectures, and I was do they they were talking about the chemical properties of plastic, and um, oh. I thought, oh dear, this is, this is not. Oh, you know, I, I like doing the you know, drawing wacky furniture and, mm. and that kind of stuff, but this is not, this isn't me. And, um, yeah, it was quite, it was a very serious course, I and mean, it was a brilliant course, I think. Yeah, actually, I think product design is quite fascinating in its it own is. way. Yeah, uh, but, um, you know, I was only 18, I think, or 19, maybe. Mm. And uh, it was, it was a pretty serious course, and there wasn't a lot of time to do anything else, really. Um, so I left after a term, went and worked, uh, well, in the family business, which is removals. So I, yeah, did sort of three or four months removals. And then we went, oh, well, I went with a mate to Australia for three months and came back 
and decided I'd try and get on the foundation course at City College in Brighton. Um, because that's really what I wanted to do. Art foundation. Art foundation, yeah, art and design. <clears throat> and that was brilliant. I mean, you know, you get to try all sorts, uh, you know, and uh, I really got into filmmaking and you know, making short films. And um, the problem was that they were a bit ambitious. I, I found myself, you know... Uh, Cast, trying to cast actors, you know, building sets. I was trying to, you know, make be tell or be Demille. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I don't know what. I, actually, no. I think I was, um, I was into science fiction films, so okay. I was just, you know, trying to be, <laughs> trying to uh, do yeah. sort of very ambitious, like you say, yeah. kind of um, George Lucas it, type it, thing. It almost went there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, on video on on little dv cameras yeah. that you know i have the idea of what this was going to look like uh, in my head and then of course you get you take out the college dv camera and it just you know aesthetically it just did not look like i wanted it to mm. and then my friends weren't particularly good actors and you know oh they're gonna hate me for saying that but um you know so they just they weren't working and uh i remember sitting in a crit one day and I'd taken photographs of the, you know, the sort of behind the scenes pictures for my sketchbook. And um, the the tutor said to me, you know, the picture, these pictures are, are kind of, they're great. You know, they're doing, they're telling the story and they're more interesting. And uh, so I started, you know, blowing up the, the behind the scenes pictures. And that's kind of, so then I specialised in photography on the, uh, on the foundation so it was one of those kind of happy accidents that you just stumbled upon this thing that became the thing. Yeah, I got really excited about photography, you know, and I, uh, I, w- I was introduced to Jeff Wall. You know, I didn't know anything about photography, really. And um, I remember really clearly sitting in the college library and seeing an eviction, I think it's 1988, which is that sort of big panoramic scene of the city. And then there's that little bit of action where two police officers are... Um, removing a couple from their house and I just think that is a whole sort of short film in one frame and just being very very excited about it so I started making sort of bad Jeff Walls yeah so you're interested in that whole kind of constructing uh, constructing uh, fictional narratives uh, and then Gregory Crudston presumably yes so when I got to university because I then applied to Brighton University to do photography. They saw my work and said, oh, you must be aware of Gregory Crudson. And I, I, oh, I wasn't. And then I saw tw- the book Twilight. It only it had come out quite recently. And I just thought that was, I mean, well, I still do think it's brilliant. So I looked, you know, I, I started making bad <clears throat> Gregory Crudsons, really. And, you know, constructing car crashes cutting crop circles into carpet that I'd, you know, I, I, you know, what I, it was excited me about photography when I was at college was that it was really quick and simple. And then I spent my whole time making these pictures, which weren't quick and simple. They were, you know, it was like, you know, I was just making them more and more compli- uh, complicated, you know, getting hold of old cars for 20 quid that had 70 pounds worth of tax left on them so that I could get the car crash the car 
take a picture and then take the tax disc to the post office and get the money to then get the car scrapped. But, right. you know, all that was a lot of fun. But, um, you know, I suppose I... Th- that was in my first year and I was just sort of beginning to tire of it. I, I didn't really... Um, I didn't really... Well, I suppose I was just running out of ideas, maybe, or, or the enthusiasm was, was running out. And um, I... Well, it was my friend's 21st birthday up in Sheffield. And my mate Ollie was doing a project about the Cookmere River, which is the sort of big river that runs through Sussex, because he'd been inspired by Jem Southern's The Red River, and he'd been following this river like Jem did. And uh, we, I was looking, I was sitting in the uh, uni uh, reception area, looking at the sort of list they used to put, because this is sort of really pr- before the internet got, got good, I, I sort of say. <laughs> and I was looking through the listings, and there was this little listing for an exhibition at Open Eye Gallery called Sleeping by the Mississippi. And uh, this American photographer, Alex Soth, had <clears throat> followed the Mississippi River and I said to Ollie, oh, this guy's sort of doing a similar thing to you. We've we've got to go to Liverpool and check out this exhibition. And we didn't know anything. I didn't, I didn't know anything else about him. Uh, we went up to uh, Liverpool. I went, you know, got to Open Eye and we kind of walked in. And I just remember walking around that show thinking, uh, wow, you know, what is going on here? Because this is, you know, I feel very naive saying this now, but, you know, I thought the pictures were, you know, they were sort of seemed a bit constructed. I didn't know whether he got the guy to dress up in the flight suit and hold the aeroplanes. I didn't know whether he got the 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 guy to dress up, um, <clears throat> you know, in a dress and sit on the bed. You know, just there was so much going on. I, You know, and then there was these, you know, this real sort of caring theme of sleep. And I kind of kept going back to the text that introduced the show and it was, you know, yeah, documentary photography and mm. I just had that cliched realisation that the world, it's, you know, the world as it is, is actually more interesting than the one I'm constructing. constructing. Yeah. yeah, which is, no, I'm, I'm kind of glad you you said that because that's kind of precisely my issue with with the Crudston, Jeff Wall type, you know, approach, which is, it, uh, it's all very well, but just compared to reality, uh, it doesn't have the same appeal. But it's interesting because you were so immersed in that, you weren't even sure what you were looking at with the Alex Soth, whereas I guess a lot of the people I talked to, you know, kind of come from a, from the documentary thing right from the gun. Yeah, so, I mean, what I found is I was on a course with a lot of people that had, you know, they'd owned a, a camera since you know their parents gave them a camera when they were younger and they'd been kind of a lot of people do some version I suppose of street photography or something like that um I mean I I used to borrow my dad's camera and I used to take you know holiday snaps but I, I just wasn't that that into it you know I was really into art I was into kind of comics and I was into into films and uh, so I used to spend my weekends at my mate's house in Eastbourne and his brother was this massive science fiction fan and he would just make us sit and watch all the good stuff, you know, the Blade Runner and, and all that. And, it, you know, that had a big impact on me. That kind of woke me up to... I don't. My brothers and sisters are younger than me, so I didn't have anyone sort of feeding me that stuff until... And my right. parents aren't yeah, that you didn't, you cultural, didn't, right. so I, you know... I. 
that was a, that made a massive impact on me. Yeah, yeah, and I guess it's interesting because we're, we're going to come on to your cryonics project, but there is a there's a whole sci-fi element to that, which I guess is kind of you know is a is a reflection of of those early influences. Yeah, I mean, it all seems very neat yeah. now. But yeah. I mean, I'm able to join these dots up retrospectively, yeah. retrospectively, and because I'm, you know, I've, I've just been working on a book finally of this mm. uh, work, yeah. and I've been, you know, looking at it all, thinking. Is it fair to say that that um, Sleeping by the Mississippi show was a kind of turning point for you? It changed the, your direction to some extent. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I certainly look back at it as being a big turning point. Um. I think it's when I started looking at other photography. I was just very excited about photography when I arrived on my degree because I didn't, it was, it was really new to me. You know, my, uh, I've got friends that, you know, did photography A-level, went to Filton. They were much more kind of educated, but, you know, I didn't know. I, I was on the first year of my uh, photography, well, the end of the first year of my photography degree, I didn't know who Henry Cartier-Bresson was. Right. I'd, you know, I'd never heard of any of the, the kind of stock stuff. So that was a point where I thought I've got to investigate, I've got to learn more. And then I started looking at, um, you know, Ghetto, I think, the Adam Brumberg and all the Chandran book uh, came out around that time. And um, yeah, I just, yeah, I started to get really into it. And and uh, yeah, Jonas Bendixson's satellites was a mm. big, big, big thing for me. Seeing that, yeah, I've heard a couple of people mention that book. Um, so, and um, so yeah, because everything um, I, I mean, everything you've yeah, I've seen on your website, for instance, is is very much rooted in the documentary thing. You ended up assisting Mark Powell. Was he one of your lecturers on your course? Yeah, the, the uh, Magnum he was photographer. My third year tutor. Okay, was he a big influence? Well, he wasn't around a great deal. He was an associate in Magnum, and he was uh, he was becoming a full member, so he was pretty full on with that. Mm. Um, but uh, you know, and he only did sort of a day or two a week, um, and he'd done one. He'd led one project. Uh, I think it was in the beginning of the second year, which he sort of did with the whole year group. Um, so I was sort of, aware, I, you know, I became aware of him and, uh, when I was asked, you know, who, who would you be interested in being your tutor? I, 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 you know, I was looking at his work thinking that's really interesting. He was doing the Airbus A380, hmm. uh, work then. That's what I'd seen. And the, um, the sound of two songs of Poland work. And I thought that looks right up my street. I, that'd be great if he was my tutor. What were the main um, lessons that you've learned from him, um, you know, both from college but also as, a, as an assistant? Because you then, as I say, went on to assist him. Mm. Well, what I, one of the things that really appealed to me about uh, having Mark as my tutor was that um, he really talked about how, you know, constructing pictures, picture making, which was, you know, something that, you know, a lot of the conversations that we had at, um, uni were, you know, really about ideas um, and concepts and con context for the work that you make, which is great. But I, I really appreciated. Well, I think because photography was still quite new to me, I wanted to become really good at, you know, making pictures. Um, 
and so I learned, I think that's what was happening. Mm. Um, and, you know, learning that, so a lot of these photographers that I was interested in making that type of documentary work were using large format cameras. I kind of decided that that's probably what I should do as well. Um, and so, yeah, that was a whole uh, thing to get into. Yeah. Uh, and that, I think that actually probably held me back a bit yeah. uh, as a third year, then taking on large format because it's you know it's slow it's expensive you're yeah. working upside down and back to front so um, so yeah it's a bit of a learning curve just yeah. to get your head around the kind of technicalities of it and, exactly yeah so this this project that you've been continually working on for quite a long period of time which is the one that's about to become a book um it's called the um, possibility of immortality no it's called <laughs> <laughs> I, I knew i was gonna get that wrong it's called... i thought oh fuck it i'll take, I'll take a punt yeah <laughs> It's called The Prospect of Immortality. Okay, close enough. Yeah, yeah. The Prospect of Immortality. I'm so yeah. sorry. Yeah, that's right. Um, I knew that, really. But, yeah, it's... Uh, well, it's been know. a long day. It has. We're, both, we're doing yeah. this at, uh, you know, you've <laughs> the already... The end of the day. You've already um, done one of these today. And I've been want... doing a whole day of yeah. a symposium about a show I'm in, so yeah, but I, retired. I, I've got no excuse. <laughs> I've been sitting around. Um, yeah, so, yeah, I guess, um, obviously, yeah, please, uh, you know, explain... Um, well, how it came about. It's it's about cryonics. Well, you can you can tell us what that is, and uh, and then uh, tell us how the the thing evolved. So, well, cryonics is the practice of preserving a human being in well freezing them in liquid nitrogen, with the intention of bringing them back to life in the future when technology has advanced to a point where that might be possible. Um. And so, yes, the project uh, started when I was a student. And following on from what I was saying about, you know, getting involved in documentary photography, or that being my interest, uh, the the next project, uh, just as I was getting interested in documentary photography, I went and signed up for possibly the most undocumentary project at uni that I could do, which was... Um, we were given an extract from Anne Michael's book, Fugitive Pieces, and the extract dealt with this story of a young boy who was, uh, you know, this, it's a long, this is sort of a vague memory, but the, 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 it was a sort of a, a very poetic text about a young boy whose parents had been taken away by the Nazis to a concentration camp and he'd managed to kind of escape into the woods and it's sort of the thoughts that are going on inside his head about um you know what what is death like um and so obviously it's it's fiction and this is the brief that i'd been given and i was sitting there you know summertime in brighton thinking well, how on earth do i respond to this you know because i want to i now want to be a documentary photographer um, and it's sort of, this is a hard thing to go and make pictures about. Um, so I, I started rereading, um, well, it, obviously the text is a lot about death. So I started rereading, um, you know, texts about photography and its relationship with death and, uh, you know, revisiting my sort of first year historical and critical studies lectures. And, um, you know, Susan Sontag wrote this whole piece about how photography is this sort of act of preservation and so I sort of went off on this tangent and 
decided I was going to do a project about preservation and photograph taxidermists, Egyptian mummies, um, embalmers, and then everything to sort of museum specimens, seed banks, just this way that human beings want to cling on to history, just that sort of human instinct to preserve. Um, And one of the things I jotted down on my list was cryogenic preservation, cryogenic preservation, not cryonics. I, I, you know, I didn't really know that cryonics was uh, a reality that people were actually doing this. Um, you know, I'd seen loads of sort of you know eighties sci-fi movies, and I kind of thought that's as far as it went. Um, so I started this project, which actually was so often a tangent from the brief that I'd been given that I uh, I was having to, I was sort of really excited about this project about preservation so I was actually sort of trying to do two projects at once um, and I went off to photograph uh, a taxidermist at the Booth Museum which is a small um, natural history museum in Brighton and you know making pictures of the, the taxidermy specimens and I I just remember walking out of there thinking oh god people have taken these pictures before and they're you know they're much better than my ones and I'm treading very well-trodden ground. Um, And uh, I kind of, you know, got on with my other response to the project that we'd been set. Um, And then I was looking through the Guardian newspaper one day, um, later, probably, I think it was later that week, and there was an article in there with the headline, Freezer Failure Ends Couples' Hopes of Life After Death. And it was... um, well, it told the story of a French family, the Martineaus, who, uh, well, Raymond Martineau had frozen his wife, Monique, in the 80s in a modified industrial freezer in the crypt of, uh, of their chateau in the Loire Valley. And then in 2002, the son had frozen his father, Raymond. Because the son lived in Paris and the chateau just... Um, sat empty with these bodies in the freezer. Uh, it, you know, the the electric motor keeping this thing running had broken down, and uh, the Remy, the son, came back to discover that the corpses had started to. Mm. Well, I think we can imagine. You can imagine, yeah. Not nice. Yeah. And he'd been battling with the French courts because it was a dispute whether this was legal or not. Right. Um, so yeah, the bodies were removed and cremated. But this article mentioned cryonics and the fact that there was an organization in america where you could um pay to have this done um and that got me researching the subject online but this was you know 2006 and you know one of the things i've been reflecting on with kind of trying to bring this project to an end or or resolve it to a point where it's a book is that you know um in 2006, when you Googled cryonics, you didn't know what this subject looked like. You know, it was a mystery. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was really the main motivation. It sort of started with, wow, uh, this is a fascinating subject. I want to know what this looks like. You know, it was sort of, it became just driven by this sort of... Yeah. And, and of course, that, that the world, we're not, we don't really think on those terms anymore because the internet is is so good now. We can... 
you know, we can find out about a subject mm. very quickly. And so, yeah, you, you kind of, um, that, that took you over to France to, to find this fat or this, this son. Well, it did eventually. Eventually. Um, but, uh, no, I start, I, you know, I, it was this story of the, well, this mentioning of the American facilities that got me, right. got me really interested. I, that, that's where I wanted to go. But of course, you know, I was a, a second year student and that was going to be expensive to you know, mm. jump. All I wanted to do was, you know, sitting in Brighton was just jump on a plane and, you know, of course they probably wouldn't let me, well, they wouldn't have let me in, but, you know, that's what I wanted to do. And so I, um, by well, I later found through um, a chat room actually where some chronicists, it was kind of when you had Yahoo group chats and I ended up in a chat room where this group of chronicists were organising a meeting in Peacehaven, a small town just down the coast from Brighton. So I couldn't believe it. I was thinking that I had to get on a plane to go and work on this project and there was something going on in Peacehaven. So, and the guy who was organising the meeting had left his phone number and of course I just, you know, rang that number and um, there I was two days later sitting in his living room, living room with him and his wife having a cup of tea talking about cryonics mm. and um, he was kind of the main at that time he was the man that kind of organised the the UK group of cryonicists mm. which which was about you know sort of 10 well 10 8 to 10 people mm. that met a couple of times a year uh, to practice the preservation procedure because of course there's no facility to store patients in the UK so they have to be preserved here and then shipped to America so they all clubbed together and sort of have formed a sort of support network mm. and they would practice these preservation techniques in Alan's house in or Alan's bungalow in Peacehaven. So it's pretty out there I mean the, these people are uh, eccentrics to say the least um, I mean maybe I'm making a judgement there but but I'll go ahead and make it. I mean, just just to sort of uh, clarify, don't, there's there's no there's no real scientific uh, suggestion that that this this may actually be worth doing for the foreseeable future. Is that basically the case? Well, there's no, you know, it's it's not. In other words, possi- the, it's not yeah. possible. It's not possible, and it's not really <laughs> within the realms of um, scientific. Uh, um, what, what would be the word predictability? No, I mean it's it it's not something which the wider scientific community are taking seriously, seriously right? Because I'm just wondering what you know what what kind of fascinated you was it the kind of wider themes? Because ostensibly, but, but, just, but yes, I should probably sorry. clarify that there are within that there are people in fields of um, in all sorts of you know people doing work on nanotechnology uh people in regenerative medicine who are starting to take it seriously mm. it's it's very very far fetched but those people are not saying this is possible and there's i'm talking about a very few people here but there are people who are you know you know scientists there's um philosophers at oxford mm. university that have signed up to cryonics now it's i've found in the in the sort of 10 years i've been engaged with the subject i'm finding you know sort of serious people that uh think this is worth a go yeah 
Well, presumably on the grounds that, you know, there's not much to lose, as it were. That's it. Yeah. And, I mean, you know, why not? Why not hedge your bets? Yeah. You know, in the event that it might one day be possible. But yeah, I was going to say, I'm wondering what, you know, the wider themes maybe were, was that what really kind of fascinated you? Because, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a very small group of people um, engaging in a fairly um, out there thing. Mm. What, what was it that you found so fascinating about it? I think obviously initially it was, you know, it was, it was you know, my, I, I suppose it was, if I'm really honest, it was my sort of interest in science fiction and all of that. I thought, wow, this is, this is sort of science fiction brought to life. This is, you know, science fiction in reality. This is, this is a way of talking about um, science fiction in a way. It's a way of, you know, I think that one of the, um, things that's kept me interested I suppose for such a long time and I think I probably I might have known it at the time I can't really remember but it seemed to me a really good subject for photography Mm. and I I wasn't aware that anyone had um, photographed it extensively you know obviously I I was I started to find um, newspaper articles magazine articles but it um, for me it was a, a subject about you know the what if it was mm. a, it was a subject about the unknown and possibilities and and faith as well to some to some extent yeah, almost yeah. A, a, re, a replacement for yeah. um religious faith yeah but when i look at photographs you know the reason i love photography as a medium it's it's the photographs spark the imagination and i think chronics is a subject which fires up your imagination and uh you know there's it's sort of you know, you take a picture of a a, per, a portrait of a person that's signed up to cryonics and it, you know, if you know that they're a cryonicist, it just sort of, yeah, it kind of makes them that bit more interesting mm. in a way. Um, and I was, you know, really the initial interest was just to find out what this thing looked like. Yeah. So at what point did you, you went to France, I think your name came in handy you know, continuing with the science fiction theme, because, uh, you know, there's kind of uh, echoes of J.G. Ballard, but um, I think the son of the unfortunate Freezer couple um, so, was I a mean, factor. So, I this mean, is, this is actually quite a long story, um, and it really makes me sound very obsessed, but I actually was going on a camping holiday that summer, um in France, uh, I don't think I've ever told the, told the story, but anyway, I was going on a camping trip. So I had this Guardian article, but I, I didn't really know where this house was. Um, it, I knew the village that it was near. So I went, we went into Nusseléon in the Loire Valley, and then I had to try and find this chateau. So we spent an entire day driving around, you know, every road up and down, every road trying to uh, find this um this this house and um i don't speak uh french my girlfriend didn't speak french so you know and I, and we did end up talking to the people in the town at the um at the at the bakery um and no one had, no one knew this was no one knew anything about it so you know i thought oh maybe i'm in the wrong place and we were pretty much given up um and we were heading back to our campsite and we just drove past this this gate and it had the initials RM on the gate. 
And uh, I just thought, oh, that's, that's Raymond Martineau. And then set back, uh, hidden, because it was all sort of overgrown, this place had been left, was this, we kind of, you know, got out of the car, walked up the driveway, and it just looked like, you know, it was an, an abandoned chateau. And I just thought, this must be it. Um, but, uh, you know, no one was there, no one was locked up, the, there wasn't really any neighbouring houses. Um, but I took pictures in the garden um, and of the outside. It was all kind of boarded up. And then I kind of, I wanted to go back the next day and, and carry on knocking on neighbours' doors, trying to, you know, mm. make contact with Remy Martineau. But at the time, my girlfriend wouldn't have any of it. So she wanted a holiday. Um, so then about, this was the, this was, I think it was like the, fo- the following February. This was in summer. This was summer 2006. And the following February, I went back again to see if I could, you know, on my own, just see if I could make contact. And, you know, I couldn't find, I had a friend of mine who's, who's French uh, trying to find out, get contact details for Remy. I've, I think I've found the journalist but uh, you know, they, we could, we just couldn't make contact. Anyway, so I went back and I was just at the house again. And then I was standing in the garden making a picture, and uh, the gardener, a, a guy who, well, a local gardener, stopped, and uh, you know, he kind of watches the house for for Remy because he lives in Paris. Mm. Um, and uh, we got talking because um, he was sort of asking, "What on earth are you doing here?" and um, I phoned up my... He couldn't speak any English. My French is unbelievably <laughs> limited. So I phoned up my friend, uh, Frank, and he kind of acted as a translator. And eventually I got Remy's phone number and uh, we organised there and then, actually, uh, that he was going to be coming down uh, in a couple of months. So I organised to go back. And then we communicated. Remy and I communicated through... Uh, he wrote to me, asked for my address, and he wrote to me, and that's that's how he wanted to communicate. He didn't want to, you know, didn't email or anything like that. He wanted to, so he wrote oh, letters back. Good old fashioned yeah, uh, good snail old mail. Fashion. Yeah, and um, he sent this letter because his English was much better than my French. He sent this letter, and he'd come to the conclusion that I was related to J.G. Ballard. <laughs> And that's why he wanted to meet me. And he was a bit of a fan, was he? Of- he was a massive J.G. Ballard wow. fan. awesome. And so, of course, I then went to go and stay with Remy um, in the house. Well, actually, I ended up staying. That was the idea. I ended up staying with his neighbour because the house is, is, you know, really falling apart. Mm. Um, and one end of it is you, you can't live it anymore. But I spend all my, you know, time with Remy. And, uh, I, you know, I just... Well, I remember sitting there, we were having dinner and I sort of, you know, had to say, I'm really sorry, but, you know, J.G. Ballard is not my grandfather. <laughs> and uh, he, I don't know how he put that together, but. Mm. He, yeah. he made the assumption. He made the assumption. You, you took kind of, well, you were in a position to take advantage of that mistake, as it were. Yeah, well, I didn't think it was that bigger. I, I, no. didn't, I didn't realise he was so into him at that yeah. time. But then when he brought it up, when, when I was there, I. So did you. And what, were you able to shoot anything? Was there anything, you know, to photograph? Anything well, yeah, that sort of made it into the final project, as it were? Yeah, so I photographed... I was there for, I think, three or, three or four days, and I photographed, you know, the whole house. And, of course, the freezer was still there. 
obviously the bodies had been removed, but I, you know, it was left. They even had, you know, so I photographed it quite extensively, Mm. all the rooms. It's all a bit creepy. I'm feeling a bit creeped out by the whole thing. (laughs) Well, it was, of course, the thing is that I, by this point, I was well underway with my, the Chronix project. And um, so I came away with these pictures of, of the Martineau house and, and Remy. And then on my next trip to America, uh, or, or further down the line, I, I started talking about how I, you know, I, I'd been to meet Remy Martineau and I, I you know, told the chronicist I was photographing and they didn't like it. It was a real, uh, you know, this is, that's not cryonics. Uh, he's not done it properly. They're not using liquid nitrogen. They were very, very... It was a bit DIY. It was very DIY, yeah, and I can see why it was a problem for them. And, um, and you know, they, their thing was that that's not cryonics. You know, it's, it's, so I, you know, and it's, and they were saying what we do is so, is, it's very, very different. So I, I sat on these pictures because for lots of reasons, but part of me kind of went along with that this was kind of a, this was a failed experiment. It, it was important to me because that was my introduction and I, I kind of, I'm really pleased I did it. Uh, you know, I followed it up, and I it it, um, it didn't figure when it became the the work the project became an exhibition. We we decided that it didn't really work. Um, but then when we started talking about well, I started talking to Gost about making it into a book. Um, they found they thought this is really important. This is a really important element to the, and especially it was my way in. But it also is the sort of, it's it's sort of, you know, it's got all the components of a fairy tale, you know, mm. and the fact that it is a chateau. And yeah, there's a kind of, there's a movie script in there somewhere. Yeah, yeah. So it, it's it's the first chapter of the book. Right. And um, and that was early days, and, and, and you wouldn't probably have imagined that you'd still be working on the project, um, what, more or less 10 years Later no, at that stage. I mean, it, I, it's sort of hilarious. I just, I can't believe it. Yeah. <laughs> Still, when I, when somebody wrote, when, when I, you know, I didn't, it doesn't feel like that long. And obviously mm. I haven't been doing this nonstop. Yeah, you've been dipping been, in and out I've of it. I've been dipping in and out of it. And I've been doing other things. And I've, um, very quickly after leaving Brighton, I was offered a job as Mark Powell's assistant. And so this was kind of the way that I, spent a lot of my time and um, kind of, you know, it was the bread and butter of my living was was working for Mark. Mm. Um, and this sort of continued on the, in the background. And it, you know, it... Um, well, when I left university, I knew it wasn't finished because I'd made it... I think I'd made three trips to America um, and I'd photographed the uh, community in the UK... But um, I, uh, yeah, I kind of, I sat on it for um, for the best part of a year. And, you know, friends and, and Mark was, was saying, you know, you should be getting this out there. Um, and I was, you know, should be entering these graduate competitions and all that sort of stuff. And I, you know, I was saying, it's not finished. You know, I, mm. I, um, I don't, you know, it's. So you felt it would be a bit half-assed to let people yeah, see it at that yeah, stage. Yeah, I was very sort of hung up on that. But um, in the end, I 
this fresh-faced and wild-eyed came up and I read that, you know, you were only eligible for that year, you that year after you graduated. And so I thought, well, I'll, I'll do it, I'll enter. And um, that led to it, led to um, the pictures being published in Eight magazine, which is no longer, but uh, it, it was an Eight magazine. And then um, that led to interest from other magazines. And I started to get commissioned to make new pictures, which was fantastic. You know, I went to Germany, uh, Geo magazine commissioned me to go to Germany, The Guardian commissioned some. Um, yeah, I was commissioned to go to America again. And, that, and right. I thought, oh, wow, actually, this is a way to fund yeah, yeah, making yeah. the work. continuing the project. Yeah. So they were sufficiently interested in the subject that they wanted you to go and do, do more of it specifically for them, as it were, those magazines. Yeah. So now we're going we're gonna to see uh, the fruits of your labour, finally. <laughs> um, and you've, you've, you're going to do a book with Ghost. And you were, I mean, you're talking about how, the, how those guys had um, in some way brought their own ideas to the, to the thing as when it came to editing and that kind of stuff. Um, so talk me through some of those um, kind of, you know, the, the things that they, um, that they might have suggested that you hadn't perhaps thought about. It's very difficult to sort of say who did what, you know, why this is like that. I mean, it was just a sort of an ongoing conversation because um, we, I've been talking to Ghost, well, I think, that, you know, for, for two years. Um, when they started it, uh, Stuart sort of said he was interested in doing a book with me. And uh, I had made a dummy... It got nominated for a, a the the project got nominated for um, Max First Book Award, so I had to make a dummy for that, and that was sort of you know I I hadn't made a dummy, so it kind of we threw something together in a couple of weeks. That was how that was I suppose the first time we sat down how how do we make this into a book? That was kind of a starting block, and then well actually then what happened is Stuart came down to my place in Brighton and went through all my contact sheets. He sat for an entire day. Oh, because that's the other thing. I, you know, it's, it's because I've been doing, <laughs> this is embarrassing, but because I've been doing it for so long, there are, I think I'm up to about 2,500 5-4 negatives. Wow. So that doesn't actually, I mean, you say that I've taken 2,500 pictures to um, some people and that's, you know, a day's work now. But yeah. it's, it's quite a lot for for, for, for five medium, four, yeah, large yeah, format. Five, four, yeah, and then and then there's sort of a hundred rolls of one twenty, and um, and not that they they've been used at all, and not that um, very many of the, you know, I, I, you know, the well, books. there's no at least there's no question that you've probably got enough material to draw from. Yeah, the problem's the other way around that you've got so much. Well, I, uh, it's very repetitive. I mean, that's the big thing about this subject is that the what I. I've started to call the visual landscape for this project, which might sound a bit naff, but, you know, there's not a lot of variety. Um, you know, some interesting... I I, real, I started to realise that I needed to... Um, well, for a long time, I was trying to chase a cryopreservation. You know, that became... You know, once I'd sort of documented the equipment and I'd 
met lots of chronicists, taken their portraits, talked about it a lot, I kind of realised that I need to witness an actual cryopreservation. Uh, and that was a very difficult thing to um, coordinate because you you can't really predict when someone's going to die. And then obviously there's masses of you know issues of whether the family would mm. let me do it, um, you know, all that sort of stuff. Uh, and then it's likely to be happening in America, so there's a, you know it's it's problematic. Um, but that happened, and that was very difficult because it happens quite quickly. Uh, and I've here there I was, you know, with a five four camera, uh, you know, trying to make pictures of you know people trying to do something as quickly as possible because times of right. the essence they right. don't you know so you don't you know and I was a bit disappointed by what it all looked like because they don't really you know the body's wrapped up um they mm. don't really need to they don't really have a the body no visible lying. corpse yeah not really i mean bits they sort of you know um that's sort of how it happens and you know i well what happened is then i've been involved with the russian cryonicists and uh in september 2010 uh, they said, "Would you? We're going. To, we built our first cryostat. You know, we built an, a cryostat like the Americans. They'd been using kind of temporary containers, and they had their four patients that they'd kept in a temporary container in in uh, in an, an aircraft hangar in in a well, yeah, in an old aircraft hangar. And they were moving the bodies out of this temporary container into a cryostat, and they they." basically invited me out there to witness this process and of course I you know that I I sort of well I photographed currently frozen dead bodies you know I, I got there I'd mm. sort of made those pictures that probably uh, is what you know we can all imagine and then when it came to the exhibition I realized that uh, they they weren't actually that interesting or they kind of if I showed those pictures, the, the the project would kind of just become about those sort of, you know, shocking pictures. Mm. And that actually that's not really how a chronic patient uh, is kept. They're amazingly, uh, they're kept in sleeping bags that sort of does the job perfectly. But, you know, the, there's a sort of reoccurring theme throughout the book of sleep um, because from the very beginning, Robert Ittinger likened cryonics when he came up with the idea in 1962 he likened a cryonic preservation to sleep um and how it would uh you know just be like going to sleep and waking up in the future and it, you know very optimistic um sort of yeah view on it but you know and then the, then you know the bodies are being wrapped in sleeping bags so this this uh yeah, this, this sort of became the reoccurring theme. And actually, um, you know, for a while, the book was going to be called After a Moment of Sleep. Right. Um, but for various reasons, we decided to go back to calling it The Prospect of Immortality. Which is what he called his... Which is, yeah, because uh, the book but... is really, in some respects, it's a response to the world that Ittinger envisaged mm. in 1962 when he came up with the idea. And uh, I kind of, I like this relationship with the original book. And the show had been called The Prospect of Immortality. And it seemed a more 
Mm. I like titles w- that give you um, that you kind of. I, I I like titles that you know what you're dealing with. Yeah. You know, I, I don't. After a moment of sleep, could be about. So too oblique. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. yeah. You, like- I mean, I, I like it, but it's. Mm. Um, but anyway, we've gone off on a bit of a tangent because I think what you were asking me about is how we made the edit. But, yeah. So there was Stuart going through all these negatives and he started to, you know, pull things out that I'd cast aside. And uh, we, we've sort of realised that the book needed to be broken into sections, that, it, that it, it was more interesting when I started to tell him little stories and anecdotes and the pictures became that bit more interesting. But it's this very delicate balance of, you know, I don't want to, it had to be a photo book. I'd, you know, I actually had offers from people who, uh, you know, wanted to make a book about cryonics and it, it just would not have been the right book mm. for me. So, you know, that's how it sort of happened really. And I mean, you're very sort of non-judgmental of the people um, that you you know, photographed and, and met and, you know, what was your general impression of, of, of most of them? Did they come across as slightly nutty or did, or was, is that, is that a reductive? Yeah. I mean, I've met, uh, you know, a lot of chronicists and they, I, I, you know, I've met a lot of chronicists that, uh, have a very, very level headed kind of view of it that, it's just an experiment, you know. At the end of the day, this this is not li- likely to. This is very unlikely to work, hmm. um, and that I'd say is the the predominant kind of thought process is that they're, 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 this is just worth a punt, and you know, I think they, you know, they just sort of like the, the like they like the they just sort of like the idea really. Hmm. But I have met uh, a number of people that are perhaps a little bit more into it mm. and uh yeah that that have really interesting um ideas of 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 where this is going and um vocalize you know things that uh mm. that exist in their imagination which is wonderful and um well it sounds like religion to me yeah, there's um you know in a way that comparison I think is inevitably going to come up mm. um this idea that it's putting a faith in technology. Of course, chronicists hate this comparison with religion because their thing is that they're actually physically doing something. Mm. Um and in religion uh you know it's it's purely a uh, well you know, it's, uh, maybe I shouldn't get into that. I <laughs> oh, no, I think we should. But um, yeah, I mean, you know, yeah, I guess, I guess it, occur, it occurred to me that, that, that these people, by definition, are probably atheists, um, largely yeah, speaking. Largely. But like you, you were saying some of them don't see any contradiction between between you know having faith in in that process, but also having kind of some kind of religious faith, um, which is interesting. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I met people that have explained to me how they don't see a conflict with their faith. But yeah, I mean, people that are, um, you know, are of a faith, there's very few of them 
as far as I know, in the world of cryonics, mm. it's, it doesn't. It's not that. You know, mm. the people that are drawn to cryonics are not really, um, you know, religious. Yeah, well, it kind of makes sense mm. um, that if you were, you wouldn't probably wouldn't see the need for all, all that mm. malarkey. Mm. So, what does it feel like after ten years to be um, bringing this thing to a, to a close? Um, it's a long, it's a long time, and you're, you know, you're at the end of the process. Is it, yeah. is, is it a relief in some way, or? Well, yeah. I mean, I actually still haven't got. I mean, it's gone to print, so we we were on press a couple of weeks ago uh, at EBS, and I have, well, I have, I'm still yet to get a kind of finished bound copy of the book, mm. so. Um, it all sort of feels quite new. Um, the other thing, I, I don't know if this is just another coincidence, but like I was reading um, a thing in Hot Shoe that, um, you know, in kind of preparation for this, and uh, the and it mentioned for some reason the date the date on this Guardian piece. Do, do you, Are you aware of this? Mm, so. the, the date on this Guardian piece yeah. was the 17th of March 2006. No, which, I'm not. Which is exactly... That is Ten years weird. to the day. Oh my god, it's giving me a shiver. I did not know that. Your book is coming out on the seventeenth of March, two thousand sixteen, right? Yeah. Well, that's the book launch date. Yeah. I had not put two and two together. Wow. I I, I thought wow that I mean because it just suddenly no, that is yeah. I mean life is weird yeah. because that is that's oh it's giving me the creeps. <laughs> I kind of thought you probably you've knew. been keeping that quiet. It, well, it just occurred to me to mention it because I I, th- I was reading this thing earlier in preparation. So I was thinking, strange. wait a minute, seventeenth of March two thousand six. That's exactly that ten years. Really I thought you'd engineered it. No, 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 no. Believe me, I hadn't. I mean. There was an idea for a while that it should be, um, it should come out fifty years after Ittinger mm. uh, published uh, the the original Prospect of Immortality because right. at, at one point you could do that. But oh no, sorry, he self published it to begin with. It would have been when it was picked up by Doubleday and published in sixty four. So right. you know, it, there was a when I first got together with. Uh, Gordon and Stu, it we were sort of you know half thinking we might do mm. something for that, but you know it 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 didn't mean very much. No, actually. exactly. Yeah, uh, to to kind of it, it wasn't you know, but that date passed because we <laughs> didn't get it together. In well, there time. you go. You have an, an alternative. Well, and it was supposed to come out last November, and it didn't for various reasons. I can't believe this. This feels right now, but mm. it didn't come out because, uh, well, Gordon. McDonald went on a very long summer holiday. <laughs> I hope he doesn't listen to this. Um, and and sadly, then um, it, we were also we, we well we were actually going to do it. And then in um, the beginning of October last year, I found out that my mum had been diagnosed with leukemia. Mm. So and it was it was a very at that point it was a very bleak. Uh, outlook it was it was very very serious um and kind of you know it came completely out of the blue and uh and that really put the yeah i can imagine the stop on on you know just it just didn't seem like a priority to rush this book together to to get it out off print and um yeah now god that is so strange <laughs> that someone asked me the other day i was doing another interview and they asked me what my uh, what my myth- mythology is, or my methodology. You know, methodology, my working 
uh, method. And I said it's, you know, it's serendipity, which mm. isn't a mythology at all. Uh, or a methodology. No, a methodology, yeah, yeah. <laughs> God, it's, yeah. Well, I'm tired. <laughs> well, no, no, absolutely. Well, no, when I was having the same conversation with Jack Latham um, about that, and, and his, it's a kind of important, it's a word that comes a lot up a lot in his, his work, but I think the, the, imp- the importance of it uh, and allowing for it and, um, you know, having a practice that, that embraces it can't be underestimated, really. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, and I think that's one of the great things. Photography as a medium... You know, it, if you go out into the world and you make your pictures, you know, and you, 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 know, you can't control what's going to happen. Mm. There's so, so many yeah. factors in the equation yeah. that can come into play. And that's the, that's the, the joy of it to a certain extent. Mm. Definitely. Great. Well, good luck with it, Murray. I will look forward to um, seeing it when it comes out um, in the very near future. And I, I presume people can... Um, uh, perhaps they can order it directly from your website. Is that the case? They can, yeah. Awesome. Okay. Yeah. So it's marioballard.com. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. All right. Well, good luck and thanks for talking. Thank you, Ben. That was great. I yeah, still can't get over the... <laughs> no, <laughs> I think sorry. I have to look that up. I, I cannot get over that. <laughs>